Turn to Judges chapter 11. <clears throat> Pray for uh, Savannah. I think Savannah's sick, feeling bad, and uh, maybe Philip has not been sleeping very much at all. Pray for Matthew, my oldest son. I think they're leaving. My, uh, they're on their way to Miami right now, I believe, him and his friend from his church, to uh, check on the girls they're trying to adopt down there, uh, contact them again. So pray for them. Pray that they'll get a ride with the, uh, the guy who's supposed to pick him up at the airport, that he doesn't forget, and things like that, like he did when we were there. Oh, I was supposed to pick you up? Yeah, no, we decided to take the cab driver and pay $160 instead. It's all right. Anyway, tonight we're going to be looking at the next judge, who is Jephthah. We're going to dispense with the introduction because it's a pretty involved chapter. Um, his story is found in Judges 11 and 12. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and get started right away. First of all, you'll notice his rejection in chapter 10, verse 17, actually, is where we want to start, 10, 17, through 11, 3. It says there, so then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. You remember that Israel had, got, had gone after idols in chapter 10. They had gone through their usual cycle of abandoning the Lord, going after idols. In Judges 10.8, Ammon, the enemy of Israel, along with the Philistines, had afflicted and crushed Israel for 18 years, it says. In verse 17 of chapter 10, the Ammonites are summoned. They're summoned together to prepare for battle. And the sons of Israel gather together in Mizpah, headed up by Gilead. Since they are directly affected by, by the Ammonites, they live in the close vicinity to them. By the way, Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River. Most of the people of Israel lived on the west side of the Jordan River. But uh, Gilead is over there near Ammon on the east side. So Gilead takes it upon itself to being geographically close to um, look for a military leader for Israel. In, in verse 18, they declare that this military leader, the guy they pick, will become um, head over, all, over uh, their, their whole tribe there, their whole area, their region. And in chapter 11, uh, verse 1, of them were introduced to Jephthah, who himself was a Gileadite. On the plus side, it says he was a valiant warrior. Jephthah was a valiant warrior. On the downside, his mother was a harlot. Now, his, his father was married... Uh, Verse 2 says Gilead's wife bore him sons, but, his, but Jephthah's mother was, he had a child by a harlot, and that was Jephthah. That, that didn't sit too well with the other sons of Gilead. They considered Jephthah to be an outcast. In fact, they drove him out of the house, and they refused to let him participate even in the inheritance, which is a big deal in Israel. Disinherited him altogether. He was expelled from the family. By the way, the same word is used in Genesis 3.24 where it says the Lord drove out man from the Garden of Eden never to return. So they were serious. They got rid of him. And that leads Jephthah to flee from his brothers. The word flee here is used, normally used in a context of hurrying to get away from your enemies. It seems as though um, the brothers of Jephthah were more like enemies than brothers. 
And so he, where does he go? He settles down on the land of Tob. What does the land of Tob mean? The land of Tob means good or goodness. Isn't that ironic? His circumstances are anything but good. He's expelled by his family. He's disinherited. He becomes surrounded by a bunch of other social misfits like himself. He's in a bad situation, but he's living in the land of Tob, the land of good or land of goodness. Verse 3 says that worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah. That same term, worthless fellows, is used in Judges 9 to describe the men that Abimelech hired. Hitmen, remember that? He hired hitmen to take out the 70 sons of Gideon. And they were described as worthless fellows. Same term is used here. So these guys that surround themselves around Jephthah are not exactly what we would call deacon qualified. They weren't that way at all. And it says in verse 3 that they went out with Jephthah, meaning that they went out to raid people and to plunder people, do things like that. And Jephthah must have become very effective at this because verse 1 says he was a valiant warrior. And so in this time, he learned to become a leader over these men. He learned to hone his military skills, his skills as a warrior, all because he was rejected by his family. Now notice in verses 4 through 11, his acceptance. Verse 4 says, It came about after, after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon, become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. Then Jephthah went out with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. The Ammonites are engaging in battle against Israel, who is still without a leader. So the elders of Gilead know they need to get someone to be their leader, and so they're forced to swallow their pride. And they go after the one warrior, the one man they know is a great warrior, in order to make him their leader. Who is that? That's Jephthah of all people. They go after him to get them to be their leader. They don't seem to be very tactful in their approach, these elders, as they try to get Jephthah. They just simply come up to him and said, would you be our leader? Lead us in battle. But Jephthah hasn't forgotten the past. He hasn't forgotten about what they did to him. In verse 7, he blames the elders for expelling him from his house. And so they no doubt had a part in this as well as his brothers. My, my guess is he was rejected by his hometown in general, the feel I get. But then Jephthah adds this fact. Not only did they expel him, he says in verse 7, he says, did you not hate me? You hated me. You don't have anything to do with me. And so you ran me out of town on a rail. So why have you come to me now that you're, in, that you're in trouble? Now you're in trouble and you're going to come to me for help? Is that how it works? Well, the answer in verse 8 is very simple. He says, look, we need you to fight for us. We need a guy who's a warrior. You're, the, you're it. We're coming, to, we're coming to you for help. We need you to lead us in battle. So Jephthah knows he's got the upper hand in this, and so he asks for affirmation from them that they will indeed make him the leader if he makes this decision. And they agree to do that. 
which no doubt probably also meant they would reinstate his inheritance. He's going to get everything back that he lost already. Well, as we look at these first 11 verses, let me make some observations about them. First of all, the relationship between the Gileadites and Jephthah illustrates, it's a really good illustration of Israel's relationship with the Lord in chapter 10. There's a lot of similarities between chapter 10, Israel's relationship to the Lord, and Jephthah's relationship to Gilead. Here are some of them. First of all, the, the Gileadites rejected, had, they had rejected Jephthah. And in chapter 10, Israel had rejected the Lord for idols. Secondly, the Gilead, Gileadites find themselves in a predicament they can't deal with. In chapter 11, the Ammonites are coming to fight them. They don't know what to do. Chapter 10, the Israelites find themselves in a predicament they can't deal with as well. Number three, Gilead seeks help from the one they rejected, Jephthah. They go to him for help. And Israel was forced to go to the Lord for help, the one they had rejected in chapter 10. Next, Jephthah at first rebuffs Gilead's appeal for help. He says, did you not hate me and drive me out, and now you want to come to me for help? In the same way, in chapter 10, the Lord, first of all, rebuffs Israel. You know, remember that chapter we, we talked about how they came to God and they said, we've sinned against you, and he says, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. He at first rebuffed them. And then Gilead makes up for their rejection of Jephthah due to the circumstances. The circumstances are beyond their control. They don't know what to do, and so they go to Jephthah for help. And Israel had done the same thing. They repented of their rejection of God due to the circumstances, I believe. And then Gilead follows Jephthah, and then Israel once again follows the Lord. There's this illustration in chapter 11 of what happened in chapter 10. It's a, it, it illustrates the true nature of Israel's so-called repentance in chapter 10. Look at verses, chapter 10, verses 15 and 16 again. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, and we covered this a few weeks ago, We have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And God's response? He could bear the, is, the misery of Israel no longer. Maybe a repentance of convenience? A repentance based on circumstances because they were being blasted by the Ammonites and the Philistines. They were forced to repent. Whereas we said in that time we talked about it, repentance should be a matter of the heart, not because of circumstances or because it's convenient to do so. And so there's this, relate, there's this illustration of the Gileadites and Jephthah as it pertains to Israel and the Lord. Second observation I want to make from these first 11 verses. Did the Lord raise up Jephthah? There's a lot of discussion as to whether the Lord raised up Jephthah to be a judge or not. It does not say expressly that he did. You know, if you look at the former judges we have studied, it does say expressly that the Lord raised up Othniel and Ehud. It does not say that he raised up Deborah, but we know he did as we read that story. Um, it is clear that it does not say the Lord raised up Gideon. But it's clear that he appeared to Gideon and told him to go fight the, the you, you mighty man of valor, he called him. We looked at the Judge Tola in chapter 10, verse 1, and it doesn't say the Lord raised him up. It simply says he arose to save Israel. Jair was a judge after Tola, but it is not recorded the Lord raised him up. So is this the Lord's doing? Did the Lord really raise up Jephthah? Was he behind all this? You know, when you read this chapter... You see this selfish request by the Gileadites who are merely interested in saving their own necks as they approach Jephthah and they say, look, we need you to be our, our leader. The Gileadites were only using Jephthah. That's all they cared about at the time. 
When they didn't need him, they kicked him out of town, right? When they needed him, all of a sudden they go after him and get him back. Does that sound like a call from God to you? doesn't sound like much of a call at all, does it? Is the Lord really involved in this? Did he really raise up Jephthah to be a judge? And I'll tell you why. I, I believe he did. Why do I believe this? First of all, because the, the, next rep, the next repetition of the pattern in Judges has begun. Chapter 10 talks about Israel sinning, Israel rejecting God, Israel being judged by God. Israel repents, I guess, somewhat, sort of, kind of. So the next thing to occur in this pattern is that the Lord will have a judge, and that man is, who appears on the scene is Jephthah. Secondly, although the Lord is clearly displeased with Israel in chapter 10, and he very much is displeased with them, he is also watching over the events that take place. Look at chapter 11, verse 11. It says there, Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before who? Spoke his words before the Lord at Mizpah. This agreement to make Jephthah the military leader takes place before the Lord. Even though it is not explicitly stated in this chapter that the Lord raised up Jephthah, it's clear that the Lord is he's superintending. He's watching over the events that take place. You know, things may not always appear to be clear, crystal clear to us on the surface, but regarding how the Lord works, but he's working. He's always working, even behind the scenes, to bring about his purposes. God is always working. Philippians 1, Paul's writing as a prisoner to to the Philippian believers, and that may tend to dishearten them that he's now a prisoner, but he says in Philippians 1.12, Now I want you Philippians to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Things didn't seem to be on the surface all that great. Paul's in prison now. We see that. We think, great, what happened here? But the Lord worked through, those, through those, that experience and through those circumstances to bring about a greater uh, outreach of the gospel, right? Even to the, those in prison there. You might be tempted to think the Lord's not really involved in my life. Where's God now? He's not involved in my life at all. He doesn't care about me, but the scripture says otherwise. He's always working behind the scenes. He's working even though... We may not even be aware of it. Another observation about these first 11 verses. The Lord will use Jephthah. He will use him, and he does use him. In spite of the fact that his background is not sterling, it's not squeaky clean. He wasn't raised like some of us and maybe in a church background and grew up in Sunday school and had everything just so, heard the gospel even. He didn't grow up that way. He doesn't have that kind of background. His mother was a prostitute. So he's got this shameful heritage already everybody knows about. He's re- on top of that, he's rejected by his family. He's driven out of town. He's disinherited. He seems to attract the dregs of society around him, the, the worthless people. He didn't seem to have much going for him at all. He's an outcast. And so and you, you would think, well, the last person that God is going to use is Jephthah, right? But in spite of all this, the Lord uses him. That doesn't mean that everything that Jephthah did was just so, was just right. It was far from it. He was not a perfect judge. But the scripture bears witness to the fact that the Lord indeed did use Jephthah and work through his life. Now, some would argue that point. I was amazed at some of the things I read. I thought, these guys not read 
all the uh, verses that apply to this. One commentator says this concerning the account of Jephthah. He says, where is God in this, in this chapter, in this chapter 10 and 11, where is God in this complex process of engaging Jephthah? God is relegated to the role of a silent witness to a purely human contract between a desperate people and an ambitious candidate. In other words, God really is kind of silent in all this. It's, it's all about Gilead having this desperate need to get a, a leader, and they go and make a human contract with Jephthah, who's ambitious to be a leader. And so they put it together. And so that's it. God's silent throughout this whole thing. Well, it may seem that way, but like I said, he, he uttered his words before the Lord at Mizpah in verse 11. But there's something interesting that takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. As they, as they are looking back to the time of the judges in that verse, 1 Samuel 12, 11, it has this to say about the time of the judges. It says, Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, in other words, Gideon. The Lord sent Gideon and Bedan, who's another name for Barak. He sent Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. So the question is, who sent Jephthah? Was God silent in all this and really had nothing to do with it? It's all about a couple of guys who were anxious to get a leader. No. The Lord sent Jephthah, according to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. And then if you will, again, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We've turned here a few times. We'll probably turn there again another time or two before it's all over with. Hebrews chapter 11, the New Testament confirms the idea as well. Verse 32. It says there, the writer says, What more shall in this great chapter of faith? What more shall I say? For time would fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith, they did it by faith, they did it by faith, it says, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, for weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Jephthah, as we will see, was a flawed saint. But nevertheless, you cannot argue against these scriptures that it was the Lord who sent him. That is the point. God sent him. You know, again, we see that God uses messed up human beings to do his work, don't we? That's what he does. He delights to do that. If God could use people in the Bible who are obviously marred in many ways, he can certainly use you or I to do his work as well. And that's what I see here. You know, I'm, again, I was reminded, I know I've read this before, but I, I think I could read it every week, and I, and I love the verses. It reminded me of 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 29, which say, which say, but God has chosen the foolish things. Listen to these, these adjectives. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God has chosen the base things of the world. Think of Jephthah. Base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That God gets all the glory. And so he uses these flawed saints. The one who was rejected becomes accepted because, far from being silent, the Lord raises up Jephthah. Even though it does not explicitly say that in this chapter, the Lord raises up Jephthah to do his work. So we have Jephthah's rejection. 
and then his acceptance. Thirdly, his, his negotiation. His negotiation in chapters, uh, chapter, verse, chapter 11, verses 12 to 28. Or we could say his skills as a negotiator, which are pretty good, by the way. Now, I had Justin, I had Justin read this section because it's the longest section in this. It's a long section we're going to cover tonight, so I'm trying to summarize it. And I may not read all these verses, but uh, I had Justin read those. But not only was he a valiant warrior, but he was a great negotiator. Through the use of messengers that Jephthah sends to the king of Ammon, he communicates the message uh, and tries to, end the, to, to resolve the situation peacefully. He tries to come to a, a resolution to this situation of war. Look at verses 12 and 13. Jephthah uh, sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to, to me to fight against my land? king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of, messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. The fight, as we will see, is over land. It's over land. Jephthah asked the king of Ammon, why have you come to fight against, did you notice the phrase, my land? Why did you come to fight against my land? The king of Ammon replies, because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt. I just want you to restore what's rightfully mine. It's my land, not yours. Give it back to me. So Jephthah answers this accusation by negotiating with the king of Ammon here. And he does so by presenting four, four arguments. Four arguments. There's the argument from history he presents to the king of Ammon. What we're calling that, at least. We're, he presents an argument from theology, an argument from precedent, and an argument from silence. First of all, the argument from history. That's found in verses 15 and 22. His argument, by the way, is based on Numbers 20 and 21. He's drawing back from the Pentateuch, from Numbers chapter 20 and 21, as he presents this argument. That's where the information comes from. He refers to an incident or incidents that took place in Israel's history, going back to history. It happened during the time in their wilderness. Israel wanted to pass through the land of Eden. You probably read about that uh, at different times. And the king of Eden said, no. Uh, and they were very nice, so we're not going to mess with your property or, or, or anything. Just let us go through your land. And he says, no, you cannot go through my land. They denied permission to this. Israel didn't try to force their way through when they, were asked, they asked permission, but it was denied. Verse 17 says they also tried to pass through Moab. Same thing. But that was denied. And Numbers 20 does not record that event, by the way, but Jephthah said that happened as well. So, so far from taking the land, they went all the way out of their way around the land. Verses 19 and 22 tell a similar situation that happened in regard to the Amorites. I'll read that. Verse 19, Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all the people and encamped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. The Amorites refused Israel passage through their land. They said, no, you're not passing through here. In fact, they went out and fought them. And God helped to defeat them, helped Israel to defeat them. So they, Israel possessed all the territory of the Amorites. Get that, the Amorites. So what's Jephthah's, Jephthah's argument from history here? What's he trying to tell the king of Ammon? He's saying, first of all, Israel not, did not force the hand of anybody. They didn't take anybody's land. They were defending themselves. 
And then secondly, he says, the land in question did not belong to the Ammonites. It never has. It belonged to the Amorites. You got your spelling wrong over there. <laughs> it's not your land, Ammonites. It was the Amorites' land. It is revisionist history. Ammonites revised history a little bit. They, didn't, they didn't, had a skewed understanding of history, one that's been revised from the actual facts. This happened, but I guess if you don't like history, you just revise it, right? To suit your taste, make it what you want it to be. And that's what the Ammonites did. So Jephthah proves from history that Israel did not take the Ammonites' land. The argument from history. And then he presents an argument from theology in verses 23 and 24. He says, since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. Jephthah correctly states that it is the Lord who was behind the defeat of the Amorites. How could Ammon possess the land of any land unless the Lord allowed them to? They couldn't do it. Jephthah understands that God was working behind these events. It was not just a lucky victory back in the past there. He says if, if to Ammonites, if you possessed any land at all, because it'd be because your god Chemosh gave it to you. Now, the, the question comes up, does this mean that Jephthah thought that Chemosh was on the same level as God? And I don't think so. Why? Because of verse 27. Look at verse 27. Jephthah says, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making me war against by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today. The Lord is the tr true judge. Jephthah realizes that. He calls him the judge. He sees the Lord as a true judge. It's the same thought as Psalm 96:5, where he says, For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The psalmist recognizes it's the Lord who's above all the gods. Psalm 90, 95, 3. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Yes, there are all these gods you guys are worshiping out here, but God is above all these gods. There's also another issue here. Jephthah called Chemosh the god of the Ammonites, but in fact Chemosh was the god of the Moabites, and Molech was the god of the Ammonites. You get him confused? I don't think so. It could be that because both Ammon and Moab are descendants of Lot, they shared the same cultural heritage same probably deities even. And, and he may have just referred to Chemosh as a god in that sense, that they shared these gods. But the point of this section is that the Lord is the one who gave Israel their land. He's the one who gives the land. He's the one who gives all good gifts. James 1.17. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The Lord is the one who gives all good things. It goes on in James 1 to say that God is the one who gave us the gift of salvation. And the exercise of his will, it says, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So God is the giver, is the point. Israel is the recipient. It's always been that way. This is Jephthah's argument from theology. And then thirdly, his argument from precedent. Verse 25. There's a precedent that has been set. It says, Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight against them? Jephthah says to the king of Ammon, Are you better than Balak, the king of Moab? Are you superior to him? You remember that account? Back in Numbers again, uh, Jephthah being a Bible scholar in Numbers, could have written a commentary on Numbers apparently. Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel, but God prevented it from happening. And that's also found, as I said, in Numbers. But the point Jephthah is making here is that Balak set a precedent 
Balak, who was a king, who was named, and he was known by people, did not go to fight against Israel. Now, they rebelled against God in many ways, in different ways, but they did not actually physically fight against Israel. They didn't do that. And Jephthah says, in effect, who do you think you are, king of Ammon? You're not even named. Nobody knows you who you are, seriously. They're called just the king of Ammon, unlike Balak. Who do you think you are seeking to wrest the land away from me? There's already been a precedent set here. Balak didn't fight against me. Why would you? Are you superior to him? Apparently, Jephthah didn't think so. And there's, there's the argument from silence as he continues to negotiate. Verse 26, while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aurora and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? The issue here is he's saying this. He's saying, look, you've been, Israel's been living in this area for 300 years. Why are you waiting so long to get the land? Why didn't you do it, say, 100 years ago? Maybe 200 years ago or so. Why are you waiting until now? It doesn't make any sense. Why all of a sudden now? This is ridiculous, really, is what he's saying. And so he concludes his negotiation with the king of Ammon by saying in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord the judge judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. He says, we haven't done anything wrong at all. Israel's not done anything wrong. We haven't taken your land. We've done nothing wrong. The Lord's the divine judge. Let him be the judge. Now, here's a judge of Israel who refers to the Lord as the judge. It's very interesting. He calls God the judge. God may have used human judges in this book, but he is the supreme judge over all. Remember, Abraham called the Lord the judge of all the earth in Genesis, and so he is. So Jephthah presents this a solid case, I think, to negotiate with these four arguments. I think it's a pretty good case, quite the negotiator. Do you think the king of Ammon is impressed? As I read verse 27 started, the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. He didn't pay attention to it. He didn't care at all about his arguments. He didn't care about any of that. He uh, totally let it go. Now one thing strikes me as I read through these verses about Jephthah, about his negotiation. You can tell he was not ignorant of the scripture, can't you? Some would say he made some mistakes in this negotiation. I don't know. He was not ignorant of scripture at any rate. He seems to have been acquainted with the law of Moses, especially the book of Numbers. He knew something of the history of Israel. He knew something about the character of God. He calls him the judge. He's right about that. Kind of reminds me of Stephen's message in Acts 7. You know, Mike, if you preached Stephen's message in Acts 7, I don't think you'd have a... Many people listening to you, filled with history from the Old Testament. <laughs> but the people listened to him there because he, Stephen made his point in that message, all that history, that you Israelites have always resisted the Holy Spirit. And what did he get for that? He got stoned to death. He got stoned to death, and the people didn't want to hear that message. They didn't want to hear, the king of Ammon didn't want to hear the message from Jephthah either. You know, and it's true that people in general in the world will not want to hear the message of of the scripture at all. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the message of the Bible. They're hostile to God. They don't want to hear the truth. But there are those who will believe. There are those who will believe and receive the message that God will call to himself. And so it's our duty, regardless of the reaction you get from people, it's our duty to be faithful in the proclamation of the truth. So Jephthah tries to negotiate with the king of Ammon. And we move on to Jephthah's vow in verses 29 to 40. Now, this is what Jephthah's known for, his vow, right? 
very difficult section. Quite honestly, you'll probably come away from this, as one commentator said, puzzled, <laughs> as I have come away from it. Let's read verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, Mizpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon, went through all those places maybe to recruit soldiers for the battle. It says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Isn't that interesting? God is silent throughout this whole section. It has nothing to do with anything about Jephthah at all, but the Spirit is coming upon him, and he's been, the Lord sent him to do the work. The Spirit came upon him for the purpose of winning the battle. That's why, that's why for the purpose of delivering Israel, as in all the cases of the judges, whatever their flaws are, that's the reason why. It doesn't mean that Jephthah was controlled by the Spirit of God from then on. Everything he did, he certainly was not, as we're going to see in a minute. Gideon did things that were contrary to God, even though God said, I'm with you, going to do this thing. I've got a, ju a job for you to do. And Jephthah did things that were wrong later, too. But the Spirit's purpose was to grant them victory in battle, to deliver them, and that's why he came upon Jephthah. Now, we still have bodies of clay, right? You can be the wisest man in the world like Solomon and make stupid mistakes and, and commit stupid sins because you're not following the wisdom of God, even though you have it. In the New Testament era, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of God, but we don't always yield to Him as we should. So things go wrong, that we commit sins, that we do things we never should have done because we're not committed to Him, we're not yielded to Him. And Jephthah was no different. Let's read verses 30 to 40, and let's try to understand this tragic vow, at least to some degree. Verses 30 to 40. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. But the Lord is silent, right? I'm sorry, I read that so many times. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aurora to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel, uh, Koraim, and so the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his only, one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are one among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did according to the vow which he had made. She had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. What are we to say about this vow and the results of it? Well, let me say several things. First of all, I believe the vow was unnecessary. The Lord never told Jephthah to make a vow. There's no reason for him to make a vow. The Lord never endorsed the vow. He didn't have to do this at all. One commentator said this. He said, Jephthah's vow is without parallel in the book of Judges or the Bible 
and is unique within the Jephthah narrative itself. The Spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah, right? He didn't need anything else. He didn't need to make this vow. It was totally unnecessary. But nevertheless, he did it. Secondly, it is unclear as to what he meant in verse 31. Sorry, I just have to be honest with the text. It's unclear to me, at least. I think it's unclear to most people. It says in verse 31, shall be whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The part that's unclear is where it says whatever comes out of the doors to meet me when I return. What did he have in mind when he said that? Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me. What did he think would come out of his house? Was it a favorite, did he think a favorite dog would come out of his house? Did he think it would be a goat? Did he think it would be a human being, maybe a servant? What did he think? There are many who think that he meant a human being, that he thought and he meant a human being, just so you'll know. Many scholars think that. The words, the phrase whatever comes out in the Hebrew does not specify either human or animal. So we don't know what he meant. But whatever he has in mind, he's serious about his vow, and he, and he seeks to carry it out. Thirdly, his reaction when his daughter comes out. Look at verse 34. Jephthah comes to his house. Behold, his daughter's coming out to meet him with tamarines and dancing. How interesting. She's, all, she's celebrating the victory. She's his only child. We're finally told this. She's only, his only child. When he saw her, he says, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low. His reaction is very emotional. You've brought me very low. Literally, you've driven me to my knees because you've come out. But it was not her who did this to him. It was himself. He did it to himself by this vow, this stupid vow. If he's going to blame somebody, he needs to blame himself for this. He says, I've given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Now, we might think he's a man of his word, right? Certainly was, but this vow is ridiculous. Now, note the daughter's reaction in verse 36. She said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. You know, it's interesting. Her answer reveals she's submissive to her father, doesn't it? She knew it. She knew she, he had vowed. She says, Hey, you, you said this. I'm going to submit to you. And it looks like she was submissive to the Lord as well. In fact, her submissive attitude contrasts to the stupidity and cruelty of her father in making his vow. So she's got a request in verse 37 and 38. Let me be well my virginity. I'm never going to have children. Let me go up and down and be well that fact. You know, this tragic vow that Jephthah made, he felt it secured his present position, but it, he forfeits his future in this. He never has, this is his only child. There's no descendants to carry on his name after that. It's a very sad ending in many ways. And then notice that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering. Now, there's a view that says, and some of you may hold this view, that his daughter was to remain a perpetual virgin. But that is not what the text says. He says in verse 31, whatever comes out of my house, out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a what? Offer it up as a burnt offering, he says. That's his vow. Verse 35, he says, I've given my word to the Lord, I cannot take it back. By the way, it's in line with Numbers chapter 30, verse 1, which says, if you make a vow to the Lord, don't take it back. So we can say he's a man of his word. Verse 39 says, he did to her according to the vow which he had made. 
He did to her according to the vow which he had made. What was his vow? He says, I'm going to offer you as a burnt offering. He did that. He killed her. He killed her. He put her to death. That's what I believe. I don't have any reservations about that at all, that that's what he did. Now, Leviticus 20, verses 1 to 5, specifically says, do not offer your children as a sacrifice to the god Molech. Don't pass them through the fire. Don't sacrifice your offspring to them. In other words, it follows that your offspring should not be sacrificed to anyone. It says it very clearly. But what about you say, and then the question arose in my mind immediately, what about Abraham? What about Abraham? God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son, your, your son Isaac. But in that case, God was testing him, testing his faith, and he stopped him from doing it, Genesis 22. The Bible is against human sacrifice. It is against it. What about Numbers 31, which says 30 verse 1, you make a vow, keep it. He kept his vow, but he made an unbiblical vow. This is not biblical at all, this vow. It was a dumb vow. God never intended him to keep this. God never told him to do it. God never endorsed it. It's yet another horror story in Judges, isn't it? We start off what seems to be good, and we end up with this horror story. In this case, you know, Jephthah had some Bible knowledge, didn't he? He knew about numbers and some other things. He knew the Lord. He's called a man of faith, but he blew it in this case. It's not enough to have some Bible knowledge. It's not good enough. You must understand the truth, and you must apply it with wisdom. This was a scheme concocted solely out of the brain of Jephthah, this vow. It had nothing to do with God at all. And not according to the word of God, it came out of his brain. It's a tragic thing that he did. Notice his conflict in chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, his conflict. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon, and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon when I called you. You did not deliver me from their hand. When I saw you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. It happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, they would say to him, say now Shibboleth. <laughs> but he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. Guess who's back and who's madder than ever? If it isn't Ephraim. Remember those guys from chapter 8? Gideon dealt with their bad attitude there. And they're back, and they're still mad. They're always mad every time you see these. They claim that, their claim is that, Jephthah, you never asked us to come fight with you. You know how these guys love to fight anyway, right? Remember that, chapter 8? They love to fight people. You never asked us to fight with you. He says, I did ask you to fight, and you didn't come help me. I don't know what happened there. It doesn't say. Who knows what happened? So Ephraim slurs Jephthah's people, the Gileadites. They make a slur against them. In verse 4, they say, you're fugitives of Ephraim. In other words, you're from the wrong sides of the, of the track. It's kind of a slur against them. So war breaks out, and Ephraim is defeated. Some Ephraimites escape, and they try to cross the Jordan River to go to safety, but they had to pass a test first. <laughs> Unfortunately for them, the Gileadites had control of the Jordan River, and they were there ready with a question. <laughs> so you couldn't necessarily tell these guys apart by looking at them. Who's an Ephraimite? Who's a Gileadite? It was similar, right? Same area. 
They said, when, when one of them would come to the Jordan River, they'd say, are you an Ephraimite? If he said, no, I'm not an Ephraimite, I'll you know, fake him out and tell him I'm not an Ephraimite, I'll get across here safely. Then he would make him say this, he'd have the test for him, he'd say, say the word Shibboleth. Well, that, what does the word mean? It means an ear of corn or a flood, depending on the context. That's immaterial. It's not about the meaning of the word. <clears throat> it's about the pronunciation of the word. How did they pronounce the word? And so they, they couldn't pronounce the word with the proper accent. That, that Like a Gileadite would say it one way, and Ephraimite would say it another way. It's kind of like, it's kinda like saying uh, <clears throat> the word car. If you hear a guy say, ka, where's he from? He's from... Closer, pinpoint more Boston, right? <laughs> New York's a good guess. I love it. I love the Boston accent, by the way. I get a kick out of that. But if a guy says car, he's not from Boston, right? It's a difference in accent. And you hear that all the time in America, a different accent. So they would say, say shibboleth, and they couldn't say the word, they, they couldn't say the letter H. They would end up saying sibboleth, and they were found out to be an Ephraimite. And so they would kill them. And that day, 42,000 people of Ephraim died. You know, Ephraim always seems to thrive on conflict, didn't they? We don't need any representatives of Ephraim here in the church, by the way, thriving on conflict. And then notice his death in verse 7. We'll quit in a minute. Jephthah died. Jephthah judged Israel six years, and Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. He dies. So my question is, how do we view Jephthah? How do we look at him? Well, he was a man of faith on the one hand, according to Hebrews 11, right? That's what it says. How can I deny what it says in Hebrews 11? It says that. On the other hand, the Lord sent him, not the same hand, the Lord sent him, 1 Samuel 12, to be a judge. But he had a warped understanding of spiritual truth, as witnessed by the tragic value made of his daughter. He killed her. It's another bizarre account of, in the book of Judges that leaves us puzzled, doesn't it? I stand back and I say to myself, what is going on here anyway? This crazy stuff back and forth. And then I think, and I talked to Chuck about this afternoon, this is what sinful nature does, doesn't it? Sinful human nature. It's bizarre. It's puzzling. Jephthah is yet another judge that shows us how flawed we really are. That's why the Bible points to the only perfect Savior and deliverer. And who's that? That is Christ. As we look ahead, as we think about these guys, we think about, we can't help but think about the perfect Savior who is Christ called Brad up the other day, and I heard this on his, uh, on his uh, answering service, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's the first thing I heard. God made Christ who knew no sin, unlike Jephthah, right, and all these other guys, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's Christ who's the perfect Savior. None of these guys are all, there's no perfect human deliverer. There's no perfect human pastor. There's no perfect human Christian. As we have seen time and time again in the Judges, no one there that stands out as some sterling example constantly. There's only one perfect Savior, and that is Christ. And that's the message. People are going to fail us, right? I'm going to fail you. We're going to fail you here at the church one way or another, but the Lord will never fail us. He will never fail. He alone can do what man can never do. He is the perfect Savior. Let's go to him and give thanks tonight. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, who is our Savior and Lord, who we look to knowing that <clears throat> we have nothing if we, if we don't have him at all. Pray we would look to you each and every day, uh, looking to you for strength and comfort, knowing that 
Uh, you're the perfect Savior. We can always go to you, Lord. You never sinned, never did anything wrong. You're the one who died for our sins and rose again. We pray we'd exalt you every day. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.